Man, it's great to see you guys. Uh, this year so far, we have baptized close to 60 people here at Cross Point City Church, which is a huge, huge deal. 60 people going public with their faith through baptism. Uh, we love celebrating baptism. And in just a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate baptism again. On the very first Sunday of October, it's October 4th. Uh, if you're a person who's never taken that step of faith and been baptized, we would love to invite you to be a part of that celebration. Um, this is for those of us in the room who know Jesus, but we've just never publicly been dunked in a tub of water with other people cheering us on. All right, if you want to be a part, and I hope you do, if you've never done it, you can sign up one of two ways. You can go to crosspointcity.com forward slash baptism, or the easiest way is to visit our connection desk in the lobby before you leave today, and you can sign up there, okay? Well, just one other thing before we get into the message. A couple of weeks ago, many of you in the room received an invitation to a vision meeting for an initiative we're rolling out this fall called Next. If you didn't get an invitation or you're wondering what it is, let me tell you really quickly what we're doing, okay? Listen, this fall, we are getting ready to take a big step in regards to relocating our church home. Um, we've been doing four and five gatherings uh, a Sunday now for months and months. Um, we keep running out of space. Every time we create a new space, it fills up, especially at these optimal hours, 10 and 1130. Um, anytime seats are open, they, they fill back up, and we keep struggling with that. You guys who've been around for a while, you know that this is a problem for us. Well, as one of my mentors has said to me, we don't ever want to be that church that lets the shoe tell the foot how big it can be. Are you with me? And so we've got to do something. And this fall, we're getting ready to do something. And we want you to come to one of these vision meetings and hear what we're getting ready to do and how you can be a part. So if you've got an invitation, look, put it on your calendar. Make a plan to be there uh, on the date that you were invited to. If you didn't get an invite, go to crosspointcity.com forward slash next, and you can sign up for a vision meeting. And we'll make sure you get an invitation but we want as many people in our church to hear about what's going on, so uh, come, all right? Exciting stuff. Well, look, we're going to be in a couple of passages today, so if you have a Bible with you or you have a device, Crosspoint City app um, or, or the Version app, grab your devices out. Let's go to Genesis 6 and Hebrews 11. Genesis 6 and Hebrews 11. Uh, last week, we started this new series called Vintage Faith. And if you couldn't be here for whatever reason, I would strongly encourage you to go back and to watch last Sunday's message. You can find it on our new Cross Point City Church app or online at crosspointcity.com. But that message really laid the foundation for where we're going throughout the rest of the series. In it, we learned what faith is, what it isn't, and ultimately we talked about how to walk in biblical faith over circumstantial faith. Now, if you couldn't be here, I'll catch you up quickly, or if you were here and just have a really bad memory, this will be good for you, okay? Uh, here's what we learned. Here we go. Biblical faith. Here's how we defined it. Being sure of the past, present, and future, because God promised it was, is, and will be so. Contrary to what many people think and believe in our world today, uh, faith is not simply hopeful, wishful thinking. Nor is it blind optimism, right? It's not you and I simply choosing to believe the best in spite of not knowing what's true or what the future holds. Instead, biblical faith is this. You and I being fully confident and deeply convicted of past, present, and future realities 
because we know and believe what's true concerning the character and promises of God. In other words, biblical faith is not, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. Biblical faith is, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Now, circumstantial faith, on the other hand, and this is the enemy of biblical faith, by the way. Circumstantial faith is this, choosing to believe what your circumstances and or feelings tell you to believe. Now, circumstantial faith is dangerous in that it has a way of convincing us to look past the character and the promises of God and to develop our own ideas about who God is based on whatever we're experiencing in life at any given moment, right? For example, if you're the person who loses a job, circumstantial faith would tell you to believe that that God could care less about you. He doesn't uh, concern himself with meeting your needs. Even though in the Bible, God has said that if you're seeking first his kingdom, He'll always meet your needs somehow, some way, regardless of your job situation. Uh, let's say you're the person who falls into some kind of sin, and you experience different feelings of, of shame, guilt, and condemnation as a result. Well, circumstantial faith would tell you this. Hey, those feelings you feel, God feels those same things about you. He's disappointed. He ang- he's angry. He, he loves you less than he did before you did whatever you just did. When in reality, God promises in his word that if we know Jesus as our Savior and Lord, that God has forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future. Isn't that crazy to think that if you know Christ, God has already forgiven you for the sins you're going to do tomorrow, next week, 10 years from now? That's insane, right? He also promises that it doesn't matter what you do, nothing you do will make him love you more or less. Maybe you're the person who uh, loves someone who gets sick or dies unexpectedly. Circumstantial faith would tell you to believe that God is unloving, he's distant, he's, he's uh, heartless, he's disinterested in your life. Even though in the Bible God has told us that in this world we'd have trouble, not because he's throwing trouble our way, but because we live in a world full of sin and all of its consequences. But he's also promised that no matter what kind of trouble we face, he's going to be there with us in the midst of it. When hardship comes our way, he's not going to leave us to suffer alone. When we face trials, he's going to face them right by our side. And ultimately, look, ultimately one day he will free us of sickness, death, pain, hardship through our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord and King of heaven and earth. Here's uh, why circumstantial faith is so unfortunate in the lives of many people. Because at the end of the day, it, it causes many people to walk away from true faith in God. Like I'm sure you know people, like I know people who uh, used to be devoted to God, used to follow Jesus, used to be all about what we're doing here this morning, and something happened, right? Someone got sick, a job was lost, uh, a painful season came their way, and as a result of what they experienced, they started believing in a God nowhere to be found in the, in the pages of this book, excuse me. Church, I want to tell you, that's why we're doing this series. I don't want those things to ever be true of us. I don't want that story to be your story. Like, I don't want us to be those people who put more stock in our emotions and experiences than we do in the character and the promises of God. And maybe you're the person who's already there, right? You've experienced some really hard stuff in life, and as a result, you're really struggling with faith in God right now. Can I just tell you my prayer for you? My prayer is that in the coming weeks, this series would help you to find your way back to the God who loves you more deeply than you could ever comprehend. And so here's what we're doing starting today. We're going to open the Bible and we're going to dive into some of these stories found in Hebrews chapter 11, these vintage faith stories, if you will, and we're going to talk about how to walk in faith 
in the midst of difficult and unique circumstances in life. Uh, For example, we're going to talk today about how to walk in faith when God asks us to do things that are hard to understand or make no sense. Next week, we're going to talk about how to walk in faith when life has us waiting. You ever been there before? God, when am I going to catch a break? When is uh, this promise going to become my reality? Some of us are there right now. You need to be here. Uh, In a few weeks, we're going to talk about how to walk in faith in the midst of fear, anxiety, doubt, and worry. And then finally, we're going to talk about how to walk in faith in the midst of suffering, hardship, and trial. So be here for this series. It's so important. And I want to also challenge you to invite those people in your life who you know need to hear these messages to come and to sit beside you week after week, okay? So with all that in mind, let's dive in. We're going to read one verse today, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 7. And we'll just spend our time really unpacking this story. All right, Hebrews eleven seven. If you don't have a Bible, then follow along with me. The Bible says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So in this verse, the writer of Hebrews points us back to the Old Testament story of Genesis, or uh, I'm sorry, found in Genesis 6 through 8 of Noah and the great flood. This story tells us that, that during Noah's time on the earth, evil, wickedness, violence, it was so ordinary and so rampant that God actually regretted making mankind. And in light of his regret, he comes to Noah and he brings with him a promise and a plan. His promise was this, Noah, I'm going to send a flood, I'm going to destroy the earth, but I'm going to save you and your family. The plan was to have Noah build an ark, this huge boat that would serve as the means of his salvation. And in Genesis 6, 14 through 16, we find the details of God's plan. Read this with me. God tells Noah, hey, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with uh, lower, second, and third decks. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably not measuring too much in cubits these days. So when we read that, you're going, I don't know what we just read. So let me help you understand what the ark would have looked like in, in modern day measurement, okay? God came, came to Noah and he told him, I want you to build a boat 450 feet long. Just to give you perspective, that's 90 feet longer than a football field. He told him, I want the boat to be 75 feet wide. That's a seven and a half story building. It needs to be 45 feet tall. That's a four and a half story building. Make it with uh, multiple decks. And when you do all the math, Uh, The the total deck area of this boat, it comes out to close to 96,000 square feet. This was a huge boat. Now, a few things to consider, because this is an unbelievable story. First thing is this. Noah most likely had zero uh, boat building experience. We know that after the flood, he was a farmer. He grew vineyards. And he very well could have been doing the same before the flood came. We, we don't know, but we're pretty confident he never built a boat like this. So can you just imagine being him and God comes to you and he says, I need you to build a boat. And not like a bathtub toy kind of boat, but a boat so large that you couldn't fit it inside the Georgia Dome. That's the boat I want you to build. Second thing to consider is this. It would have taken years for Noah to build this boat. 
The Bible tells us that Noah, he was 600 years old when he finally entered the ark. Uh, He was 500 years old when he fathered the three sons that were with him on the ark. And in between 500 and 600, God came to him and, and gave him the instructions to actually build the ark. Now, his instruction was this. Bring your sons along with their wives onto the ark with you. That lets us know that that these guys, they needed time to grow up and get married. So most biblical scholars believe that it probably took him anywhere between 50 and 75 years to build this boat. That is not a small job. That is a career. Last thing to consider is this, that before this time in history, no one had ever seen a flood. Certain biblical scholars debate whether or not uh, the people of the earth had ever even seen a rainstorm. So again, just imagine being in Noah's shoes and and God comes to you and he says, "Uh, hey bro, flood's coming, build a boat. You imagine that conversation? God, a, a what is coming? A flood. Not sure what that is, God. Can you be more clear? Help me out here. Yeah, no, water, it's going to fill the earth. Uh, Where you see land, it's going to be water. Water's going to fall from the sky. It's going to come up through the ground, and every living creature is going to be washed away. Flood class 101, right? That's what Noah got in this moment. Now, with all that in mind, here's what I want us to do today. I want us to talk about the relationship between faith and works and namely those works that God is calling you to that for you personally might fall into the same category as ark building. And I'm going to give you some takeaways from Noah's story so that this all makes sense, okay? First thing, if you take notes, this is stuff to write down. The first takeaway from Noah's story is this, that at times faith can lead to work you've never done. Faith can lead to work you've never done. When I reread Noah's story this past week, I had this thought. Uh, I wonder if Noah at any point said to God, God, I've never done this before. I don't know how to build a boat. I don't even own a saw. Like, where do I get nails? How do I measure this thing correctly? God, are you going to send me a supernatural blueprint from heaven so I don't get this wrong? I don't know what I'm doing, God. I've never done this before. Can I ask you this question? What's that thing that you know God wants you to do that you've never done before? And are you using that as your excuse for not doing it? Like, for example, maybe some of us in the room would say this to God. uh, God, I've never given financially before. I've never invested my hard-earned dollars back into your kingdom. And, And God, I know you want me to practice faith in that area of my life. You want me to trust in your promises concerning stewardship and giving and your provision. But God, that's scary and I've never done it before. And I don't know that I really want to start now. Uh, Maybe for you, it's this. Um, God, I've never shared Jesus before. I've never experienced what it's like to name him to my friend, to my family member, to my coworker, my neighbor. God, how do I even get into that weird, awkward conversation? Uh, God, I'm sure that you want me to trust you to give you all or to give me all the words I'll need to, to speak your truth because you, you promise that you will. But God, I've I've never done it before. Maybe this is you. God, I've never adopted a kid before. God, that's scary, and I feel like you're leading me to that. You tell me in your word that we need to take care as your followers of the orphans and the widows, and and I really feel like you want me to take in an orphan kid and parent that child and trust you to give me everything I need to do it well. But God, I don't even know if I want any more kids, and I've never done that. Here's the question. Again, what is that thing that you know God wants you to do 
that you've never done before? And are you using that as your excuse for not doing it? The second takeaway is this. We learn from Noah's story that at times faith can lead to work you don't want to do. Think about this with me. You really think Noah got out of bed every day for 50 to 75 years and went, Woo, get to build a boat today. I don't think that was the case by any means. I think there were probably days when Noah got out of bed and he went, God, please, not again. I don't want to do this anymore. My thumb still hurts from yesterday when I I bashed it with the hammer. I still have blisters from the saw, splinters in my hands. I can't get out from hauling these pieces of wood around. God, the last thing I want to do today is, is carry lumber through the scorching heat. I'm tired of not being able to sleep well at night because of this sunburn I keep getting. Like, I truly believe there were days when Noah just threw his hands up to God and said, God, why do I have to be the boat guy? Why do I have to do this again? I don't want to do this anymore. Here's my question for you. What is that thing in your life that you know God wants you to do that you don't want to do? Or maybe for some of us, here's the question. What's that thing in your life? That you're growing tired of doing, but you know God wants you to keep doing it anyway. What is it? Maybe for you it's this. Maybe you're saying to God, um, God, I'm tired of working on my marriage. Nobody told me it was going to be this hard. God, I know what you say about how to do marriage, and you promise that when we do it your way, it's going to work, and it's going to be good for me, and it's going to honor you. But, but God, I'm sick of trying to love my wife like Christ loves his church. She belittles me. She disrespects me. She treats me um, as if I'm beneath her. And God, it's really hard for me to love her well right now. Or maybe you're that wife saying, um, God, I don't want to follow my husband's leadership anymore. God, I'm sick of, of him getting to be the authority in our household. He's lazy. He's selfish. He talks down to me when he comes home from work. All he does is sit on the couch and watch ESPN all night. God, I don't want to do this anymore. Maybe for some of us it's this. Uh, God, I don't want to forgive that person who's hurt me. God, I I know that that you say if I forgive, it's going to free me up. It's going to change me. It's not hurting them what I'm doing. It's hurting me. God, I know that if I I forgive, it's going to free me. But but God, I don't want to forgive. What they've done to me, they don't deserve my forgiveness. I can't show mercy and just let it go. Maybe for you, maybe for you it's... It's something like this. Um, God, I don't want to go on the trip. I don't want to serve in that ministry. God, I don't want to humble myself. I don't want to be the person that puts others before me. I'm sure all of us, if we just took the time to think about it, could come up with an answer to the question, what is that thing that you know God wants you to do that you don't want to do? Or what is that thing that you're doing that you're getting tired of doing, but you know God wants you to keep doing it anyway? The last takeaway from our story is this. We learn from Noah that at times faith can lead to work you look foolish doing. I mean, think about it. Don't you think Noah looked like a complete fool while he was building this boat? I do. Like, I wonder if his community viewed him as the doomsday prepper of his day. You know the kind of people I'm talking about, right? Those people that that store up food, fuel, and ammunition in, in an underground shelter for the uh, you know, preparation for the day when the economy crashes and the world ends. You know those people, right? If you are one of those people, man, we're glad you hear uh, Jesus, he's king, he's on his throne, it's all gonna be okay, okay? But listen, I just wonder if, if his community ever looked at him as if he was that guy. Like, I wonder if, if people walked by Noah as he was building his boat and, and this conversation ever went down. Hey, Noah, what you doing, man? Building an ark? 
Wow, it looks pretty big. What's it for? What's well, for the flood? Uh, f- flood? That's a new word for me, bro. What do you mean? Well, God told me. And you love to hear that little gem coming off the lips of the guy in the middle of nowhere building a huge boat. God told me. God told me that a flood was coming. That water was going to fill the entire earth. And if it, any living creature not on my boat would be washed away and destroyed. I'm sure people walked away from that conversation thinking to themselves, what is that guy smoking, right? Like, what a fool. But not only that, I think about the week that went by between Noah and his family getting on the boat and the flood actually beginning. Like, God told him to get on the ark seven days in advance of any rain starting to fall. Imagine the people walking by. Wow, that guy, he's lost his mind and his family, they're just going along with it. I mean, what an idiot. He spent 50 to 75 years of his life building this huge boat, and now he's on it. Not just him and his family, but a bunch of animals are with them, and nothing is happening. He's going crazy. 600 years old. Doesn't look good on him, right? Here's the question. What is that thing that you know God wants you to do, but you're scared to do it because you're worried that you'll look foolish in the process? What is that thing in your life? Maybe for some of us, it is sharing Jesus. God, I don't want to share Jesus with my friend, my coworker, my family member. If I open my mouth and I start talking, they're going to think I'm weird. They're going to think I'm lame, that I've lost it. They're not going to want to be my friend anymore. God, I don't want to do this because I'm going to look foolish if I do it. Maybe again for you, it is that forgiveness thing. You're saying to God, God, all, all my friends, all these people who really love me, they're telling me I can't forgive. I should If I forgive, I'm going to be the idiot that offered forgiveness for this awful thing that was done to me. God, I can't just offer mercy. I can't just let it go. What are people going to think of me if I extend forgiveness to this person after what they've done? God, I'm going to look like a fool. Maybe for you it's this. Um, God, really downgrade my lifestyle so that I can be more generous? What are people going to think of me if I move into a smaller house, if I buy a less expensive car, if my wardrobe is smaller and, and I, I only have a few outfits to pick from each day. What are people going to think? I'm going to look like a fool. I put so much stock in these material things all my life. If this changes, I'm going to look foolish. What again is that thing in your life that you're worried about doing because you fear that you're going to look like a fool if you do it? Here's what I love about our boy Noah. Even though God asked him to do something that he had never done, that he probably didn't want to do on certain days, something that made him look foolish in the process of doing it, Noah did it anyway. Genesis 6, 22 tells us this plainly. Noah did this. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And why did he do it? Well, we read it earlier in Hebrews 11, 7. He did it because of faith. Look, Noah was that guy who banked his entire life on the promises of God. He was fully confident and deeply convicted that God was going to send a flood and that he desired to save his family. And because of his confidence and conviction in the, the character and the promises of God, he acted on God's plan. And he was a man who obeyed God even when it was hard, even when it didn't make sense. And the Bible tells us that he did it all in reverent fear. I love that phrase, reverent fear, in Hebrews eleven seven. That phrase reminds us that walking in faith requires us to have a healthy fear of God. If you're taking notes, you need to write that down. Walking in faith 
requires us to have a healthy fear of God. Now, what do I mean by a healthy fear of God? I mean that you and I, as Christ's followers, should walk through life each and every day with a deep sense of awe, respect, and reverence for who God is and what he's capable of. A healthy fear of God is is grounded in an understanding that, yes, God is a loving father who wants what's best for his kids, but he's also a powerful and sovereign king who could wipe us from existence in the blink of an eye. I've used this illustration uh, of my relationship with my dad to kind of explain this in the past, and I'll use it again in case it's helpful. But I have a great dad. Growing up, I never once questioned his love for me. Uh, My dad was always gentle, kind, compassionate, affectionate toward both my brother and myself. And so, again, I never wondered, well, how does dad feel about me? Even though that was true, I was pretty sure that dad could take me if he wanted to take me. Like, I was confident of that. And because I believed that was the truth, I never wanted to do anything that provoked my dad to anger. Like, I didn't want to hear mom say those words that any kid dreads to hear. Just wait until your dad comes home, you dirty, sinful heathen, right? I never wanted to hear her say that. That's what a healthy fear of God looks like. I know he loves me. I know he wants what's best for me. I know that he's my good, loving father, but I know what he's capable of. And because I know what he's capable of, I would never dare to do anything that might provoke him, provoke him to anger. Instead, I'll choose to live my life each and every day in a way that honors him as my loving father and my sovereign king. Now, because Noah acted in faith and in reverent fear, the Bible tells us in verse 7 that two things happened. I'll put this back up so you can see it. By this, Noah condemned the world. That's number one. And then secondly, he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So let's talk about this. What does it mean that Noah condemned the world? Here's all it means. That because Noah believed God and acted on the promises God made him, the the world around him gained an understanding that they were wrong about both God and life. Here's what I mean, okay? 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that Noah was a herald of righteousness. This suggests that Noah didn't just build his boat while keeping his mouth shut. You with me? Instead, as he built his boat, he was declaring and proclaiming righteousness. He was the guy warning everyone, the flood's coming, the flood's coming. Turn from evil, turn from violence, turn from sin, turn to God. He was preaching, leave the old life behind and live a new righteous life. That's what he was declaring. Now look, imagine this with me. Noah and his family, they're safe on the boat. They're cozy and dry, and the raindrops start falling. And you're the person who didn't listen. You're the person who walked by the boat every day going, what a fool, he's lost his mind, can't believe. Somebody wastes their life doing something like that. You're the guy who heard the messages, turn, 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 don't keep living the way you've been living, turn to God and, and know a different life. And the raindrops start hitting you and... And after a day or two, you're going, I should have listened. I should have listened. I just wonder if the, if, as if the, the waters kept rising, if people are beaten on the side of the boat, going, no, please let us say we were wrong. That's what it means when the Bible says that, that by faith he condemned the world. Look, can I just tell you, church, when you and I act in faith in the promises of God, the same thing happens by our actions and by our words we are able to show the world outside the walls of this building that they are wrong about God and life. 
when we act on the promises of God in faith, our actions serve as a warning, if you will, that people face condemnation unless they turn from sin and evil and to the God who desperately wants to save them. The second thing that happened is this, that Noah, he became an heir of righteousness. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, it just simply means that because Noah believed God, the promises of God, that God declared him as a righteous man. In other words, because of his faith, God viewed him as a man worthy of his love and his acceptance. I mean, it's just a beautiful thing. I want to stop for a moment and talk about the relationship between faith, works, and righteousness, if I can. Because I don't want any of us leaving today thinking that righteousness is something that we earn. Look, righteousness is always received. It's never earned. You need to hear that and know that and, and write it down if you're taking notes, and I'll show you what I mean, okay? Here's the wrong way to think about faith, works, and righteousness. It's not that I believe in the promises of God, and then I start doing all these good works to prove that I believe, and once I've done enough good works, well, then God declares me as righteous. Look, this pattern suggests that I have to do something to earn the love and acceptance of God. That is an unbiblical idea, and it contradicts the very heart of the gospel message. The, the, the right way to think about faith, works, and righteousness is this, that I have faith in the promises and in the character of God. I, I believe in who God is, and I believe in what he's promised to do, and as a result of my faith, God declares me as righteous. Here's how it works today. That happens when you and I believe the promises of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ. Like when you and I believe in what God has promised us to be true about the perfect life of Jesus, the sacrificial death of Jesus, the death he died in our place for our sins, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, that he rose after three days to bring us new and eternal life. When we put faith in those promises, we inherit Jesus' righteousness. Jesus gives us his righteousness as a gift, and, and God is thereby allowed to see us as people deserving of his love and acceptance, even though we're not. Isn't that incredible? And the next thing that happens is this. When you put faith in, in Jesus, he's our ark today, if you will, the one who is able to save us from the wrath and destruction God is going to eventually pour out on sin one day. When we put faith in him and receive his righteousness, guess what happens? We start doing good works. Our lives start to reflect what's true about who God has now declared us to be. Are you with me? This is what James points us to in James 2.17, the brother of Jesus. He says that faith without works, if you know it, it's what? Faith without works is what? It's dead. If you're the person that, that claims to have faith in God and who he is and in what he's done for you, but your life is void of good works that prove that to be true, James says what you have is a dead faith. And that faith, according to him, doesn't save anybody. That dead faith is a faith that leads not to righteousness but to destruction. And so here's what we all need to wrestle with. Uh, if good works are missing from our lives, what does that say about our faith and, and whether or not we've truly received righteousness? You need to wrestle with that constantly. Because, again, the person who who knows Jesus, who's expressed faith, has received righteousness. And that always leads to good works according to what's true in the Scripture. So as we get ready to close, let's ask one final question, which is this. What, what does Noah's story mean for us today? Like, how do we, like Noah, walk in faith when God calls us to do things that we've never done, that we don't want to do, 
or that we fear might make us look foolish in the process? I just have one answer. It's nothing fancy. It's nothing flashy. It's pretty direct and straightforward, but here it is. What do we do? Well, we lay down excuses and we get to work. If we want to live out faith like Noah lived out faith, regardless of whatever it is God's calling us to, this is it. We lay down our excuses and get to work. Um, go back in your mind with me, if you will, to your answers to the questions I asked earlier. What is the thing for you that you've never done? What's that thing that you know God wants you to do that you don't want to do? And then what's that thing you know he wants you to do that you fear you'll look foolish doing? You got your answers in your mind? Okay, here's the next question. Why are you so unwilling to do it? I mean, is it your marriage? Is it your finances? Forgiveness? That trip? Is it that kid you need to take in? What is it? And why in the world are you so unwilling to do it? Could it be, could it be that you lack confidence in the character and the promises of God? Look, I think it has to be. I mean, what else could it be? Think about this with me. If you truly believed that marriage works best when you do it God's way, why wouldn't you as a husband and wife just do marriage God's way and work on your marriage? If you truly believe that forgiveness frees you up from anger and bitterness and makes you more like Jesus, why wouldn't you forgive? I heard this analogy once for those of us struggling with forgiveness, that, that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. You know when you don't forgive that person, it doesn't do anything to them, right? But it will eat you alive. It will wreck your life. Why wouldn't you just forgive and be freed up from that? Uh, if you're the person that needs to start investing financially in God's kingdom, why wouldn't you do it if you truly believe that giving financially results in greater contentment, greater joy, and God's continued provision in your life? Why wouldn't you just give? Why won't you share Jesus if that's what you know you need to do? Like if God's promised you that he'll be with you, he'll give you the words you need, that the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you will convict that other person you're talking to of sin and convince them that what you're saying about Jesus is true and right why wouldn't you just share Jesus? Look, I could give other examples, but here's my simple point. Look, if we really believe in the promises of God and we really believe in his character, who he is, we have no excuses for refusing to do the things he's calling us to do. If God is who he says he is, and he is, and if God will do what he's promised to do, and he will, that should be all we need to say yes to him. I know some of you guys know what this is behind me on the stage. Uh, for those of you that don't, I'll just explain it quickly. Uh, this is a white flag. The white flag is an international symbol for surrender. When a military leader raises a white flag on the battlefield, it means that he's unarmed and that he's ready to give up the fight. Here's my question for you today. In what area of your life do you need to raise your white flag before the God of the universe and finally give up the fight? What is it? Is it your marriage? Is it with your money? Is it, is it in the area of forgiveness? Is it, is it taking in that kid? Is it sharing Christ with a, with a neighbor, with a coworker? Like what area of your life do you need to say to God today, I'm done fighting? God, I'm throwing up my flag. I'm surrendering. God, I don't care that I've never done it. I don't care that I don't want to do it. I don't care if I'm going to look like a fool in the process. God, if this is what you want me to do, I surrender. I say yes. I trust in your character and in your promises. God, here is my life. Have your way. Where do you need to surrender today? Where do you need to stop fighting God 
And would you be willing to do it before you walk out of this place? Look, here's how our response time is gonna work. In just a moment, our prayer team's gonna come forward and they're gonna be ready and available to pray with you and for you. The band's gonna come and they're gonna lead us in a song and we're gonna open the front of this room up. And I'm asking you today, look, as your act of surrender, would you come and would you bow humbly in the presence of God and allow us to call on God on your behalf in prayer as you lay down and surrender areas of your life to him. I know that's gonna require humility and courage on your part. I'm gonna pray for you in just a moment before we respond. But I'll tell you this, man, you're not gonna be the first to come. The last two gatherings, the front of this room has been flooded with people. God has been moving and changing lives today. You're the person, I know some of us were already thinking, well, God, uh, I don't know if I can do this. I've never done it before. James, I don't want to get out of my seat, man, right? That, that's weird. I don't want to do that. Am I going to look like a fool if I get up and move? Can I just tell you, if you want God to do things in your life that only he can do, sometimes you need to take steps you've never taken before. And today, I believe there are people in this room who need to lay down their lives before God and take this step. And so right now, I want to pray for your courage, and I want to pray for your humility, and we're going to open our lives to whatever God wants to do in this place. Will you join me? Let's pray, God. We need you. God, we want to experience you. God, I'm asking you to meet with us. Speak to us. Let us feel your presence. Feel your touch. God, my prayer is, is that you would give courage to those people who need it right now to come and, and to bow humbly in your presence. God, give humility to those people that are battling right now pride and, and fear. God, would you give them the humility they need to come and to bow in your presence, to let go of these things they're fighting you on, they're holding on to so tightly. And God, I pray that as people come and, and bow before you, God, that you would meet them where they are with compassion, kindness, power, love, grace, mercy, whatever they need and that you would do a work in their lives that only you can do. So God, would you just move in this place? God, we give you this time. Have your way in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.